Welcome to SMT Pod, the premier audio publication of the Society for Music Theory. In this week's episode, Thomas B. Yee discusses non-octave repeating scales, exploring precedents in the ideas of theorists from outside mainstream music theory, and the application of non-octave repeating scales in the works of living composers. From the beginning of our music education, we are taught octave equivalence as a foundational given. For example, pitch names run from A to G and the next pitch restarts at A to indicate that it is, in some sense, the same as the previous A. A C major scale repeats its seven pitches starting on C in each octave. Octave equivalence is assumed in pitch naming, the layout of keyboard instruments, equal temperament tuning, scales, and chord analysis. Even 12-tone rows and serial techniques assume octave equivalence, as a C in any octave counts as a C for the purposes of the tone row. Pitch organization and harmonic theory as we know them largely depend on the assumption of octave equivalence. But what if octaves aren't equivalent? Or, to state my meaning more precisely, what if octaves aren't treated as equivalent in terms of a piece's pitch organization as a compositional choice? As a composer and theorist, this question has increasingly occupied my research and creative activities, and I am fascinated by the musical possibilities posed by this question. Let me clarify my meaning. I am not primarily interested in ontological claims, for example, whether each pitch we call C is, in some metaphysical sense, the same as the others. Nor is it a pedagogical claim. I do not doubt the usefulness of octave equivalence in teaching music, as I regularly do. Nor is it an acoustic claim concerning frequency ratios and tuning systems. Rather, my interest is a practical and creative one, namely if composers eschew octave equivalents in scalar and pitch organization, what innovative compositional possibilities may be discovered. In this episode, I present my research on non-octave repeating scales, focusing on their historically, sonically, and compositionally unique qualities. True to their name, non-octave repeating scales are those that repeat not at the octave as conventional scales do, but at some other interval. For example, a conventional C major scale repeats its intervallic content at each C pitch. A non-octave repeating scale using similar intervallic content might repeat at the interval of a major ninth repeating at C, then D, then E, and so on, sounding like this. A non-octave repeating scale like this one enables unique harmonic possibilities when arranged vertically as a chord voicing. Let's listen to one of my favorites. We just heard the chord voicing C, E, F-sharp, and B repeating at the major ninth, starting at D, then E, F-sharp, and so on. If we were speaking in person, I would ask what you heard in that sonority. Perhaps you heard it as dissonant, with cross-relations occurring across different octaves, such as the C3 and C-sharp 5, or D4 and D-sharp 6. Perhaps you heard it as a tall chord voicing utilizing jazz extensions, containing a sharp 11, flat 13, flat 7 and natural 7, and flat 9, natural 9, and sharp 9. 
Or perhaps you heard polytonality, with C, D, E, and F-sharp Lydian tonal centers articulated across different registers. However, I heard a single repeating chord voicing, as if one had played a C major triad in multiple octaves, but without repeating at the octave. Rather, the initial chord voicing, C, E, F-sharp, and B, does repeat verbatim in higher registers, only repeating at the major ninth. Non-octave repeating scales are both under-theorized and underused. Speaking anecdotally, every composer and theorist I have spoken to about non-octave repeating scales either had not considered them before, or agreed that there has been little formally theorized about them. Indeed, I am broadcasting this episode across SMT in part to hear from the community about other relevant work that exists. Among living composers, Craig Weston, Luis Obregón, and I compose using non-octave repeating scales, and examples from these composers' pieces will be heard later in the episode. If other living and 20th or 21st century composers make use of non-octave repeating scales, I would love to hear about them. One well-known moment from Maurice Ravel's Bolero could serve as a precedent for non-octave repeating scales. At rehearsal 8, after several statements of the primary theme in C major, a solo French horn restates the theme in C major with two piccolos, doubling the melody not in octaves, but transposed to G major and E major. Let's listen now. This moment is much commented on by Ravel scholars. For example, Jenny Beavers hears the horn and piccolos fusing into a single timbral stream akin to an organ stop, and Stephen McAdams interprets the G major and E major piccolo doublings as sounding partials of the overtone series, as if the horn melody were their fundamental. It is beyond the scope of this episode to analyze Bolero in depth, but when I listen to this striking moment, I hear a sonority produced by a non-octave repeating scale. To be clear, I am not claiming that Ravel conceived of this moment as using non-octave repeating scales. The presence of key signatures for E major and G major in the piccolo staves indicates that Ravel most likely thought of this moment as using polytonality. Still, because the E major piccolo doubling occurs two octaves and a third above the French horn's C major melody, and because the F sharp in the G major piccolo doubling can be derived from a major scale repeating at D, this iconic musical moment could be analyzed as a non-octave repeating major scale repeating at the major ninth, at C5, D6, and E7. The next segment outlines theoretical precedents of non-octave repeating scales that in some way conceptualize pitch organization according to intervals other than the octave, but stops short of taking the plunge into full non-octave repetition. It is important to distinguish the non-octave repeating scales in view from theoretical and compositional approaches which, while similarly challenging conventional scalar organization, do so in distinct ways. 
First, spectralism organizes pitch according to sound spectra, often based on acoustic analysis of physical sounds and objects, as well as ring modulation. Spectralism is associated with European composers, including Gerard Griset, Tristan Murdai, and the late Kaya Sariaho. Like non-octave repeating scales, spectralism produces harmonic frameworks that are register-dependent and do not feature octave equivalents. A given C pitch may be included in a spectrum, while another C is not. However, sound spectra are based in physical acoustic properties, not intervallic relationships as non-octave repeating scales are. Second, microtonality and alternative tuning systems, such as just intonation, subvert octave equivalence and or conventional scalar construction, such as in the works of Lamont Young, Harry Parch, Ben Johnston, and many others. I do not wish to detract at all from the importance of researching and composing using microtonality and alternate tuning systems. However, I am convinced that there is vast potential in exploring non-octave repeating pitch organization within equal temperament tuning. Because equal temperament broadly remains the standard in music education, performance, and composition, expanding equal temperament pitch organization beyond the assumption of octave equivalence is critical. Third, tonal polymodality is related to non-octave repeating scales in an inverse relationship. In the second season of SMT Pod, Frank Nalrot and Matthew Ferrandino theorized tonal polymodality as music that has a clear tonic and stacks multiple modes with the same tonic and moves between two or more modes over the course of a piece. For example, the pre-chorus of Tool's song Stinkfist is centered on an E tonal center, but uses Aeolian mode in the electric guitar riff, while the vocalist sings a Mixolydian melody. Like non-octave repeating scales, the modes used often depend on registration, as in Stinkfist. Tonal polymodality is a fascinating analytical tool with much theoretical and compositional potential. I myself have inadvertently composed using this technique in several pieces. However, it is the exact inverse of non-octave repeating scales. While tonal polymodality features the same note of repetition with different modes in different registers, non-octave repeating scales use different notes of repetition in different registers with the same mode used in each. With those distinctions made, we can now explore theoretical precedents of non-octave repeating scales, all of which originate from outside the European-American canon known colloquially as classical music. To put a finer point on it, it took voices outside the mainstream edifice of music theory to plant the seeds of a non-octave repeating harmonic system. I'm happy to be proven wrong in this claim, but I'm unaware of any so-called in-house precedents. This list is meant to survey the landscape of non-octave repetition and is by no means exhaustive. For example, I'm curious whether Hindustani rag and Indonesian gamelan scales might subvert octave equivalence and repetition, but I'm not familiar enough with these traditions to comment on them myself. I will explore the work of three music theorists, Jing Fang, Ko Izumi Fumio, and George Russell. Jing Fang was a renowned Chinese acoustic theorist and mathematician operating in the 1st century BCE Han Dynasty. Around 45 BCE, Jing Fang theorized a 60-tone tuning structure using a system that can be translated three-scale rise-slash-fall tuning. 
This references a Chinese tuning method used since the second millennium BCE, using a sequence of falling fourths and rising fifths to generate 12 pitches, or lu. Each rise uses the tuning ratio 3 to 2, generating an ascending perfect fifth. Each fall uses 4 to 3, a descending perfect fourth, which together sounds like this. Rise slash fall tuning generates pitch collections that are more spiral in nature than linear or cyclical. Jing Fang's contribution was deriving a pentatonic scale collection from each lu in the spiral, totaling to 60 distinctly tuned pitches. 5 times 12 equals 60. Jing Fang's 60 tone system can be linearized in equal temperaments by combining pentatonic scales generated from a sequence of consecutive rising fifths instead of rising and falling. As Obregon shows, a pentatonic scale from C, C, D, E, G, and A, overlapping slightly with one from G, G, A, B, D, E, could continue upward in a sequence sounding like this. However, as Ching Feng's primary concern was with mathematical tuning calculations, his 60-tone spiral of pentatonic collections, which could have produced a non-octave repeating scale at the interval of the perfect fifth, remained a theoretical framework only. As Hafiz Modirzada writes, Ching Feng and other Chinese acousticians balanced theory and practice between the pursuit of absolute perfection on the one hand and the acceptance of common sense simplification on the other. In other words, Jing Fang's sequence of 53 fifths spanning an astounding range of 31 octaves was an acoustic, mathematical heuristic only, not meant to be actualized in performed music. Kou Izumi Fumio was a Japanese music theorist known for shaping how traditional Japanese melodic modes are widely understood today. In 1958, Kou Izumi published the treatise Nihon Dento Ongaku no Kenkyu, research on Japanese traditional music. As Liam Heinz Tawa writes, though previous writers conceived of Japanese modes as pentatonic or heptatonic scalar collections, Koizumi argued that Japanese folk music is not bounded by an octave at all, but rather by a perfect fourth, facilitating what Heinz Tawa terms the rise of the tetrachord in Japanese music theory. Koizumi's key insight was realizing that the Japanese modes he studied, when generated from the same root, shared in common a perfect fourth, perfect fifth, and octave above the root. Koizumi viewed these as two intervals of a perfect fourth, from the root to the fourth, and from the fifth to the octave. What varied between modes, giving each its distinct identity, was which interval filled in each of the two tetrachords. The Miyakobushi mode fills in a semitone above the root in fifth, the Ritsu mode, a tone above the root in fifth, and the Minyo mode, a minor third above the root in fifth, and the Ryukyu mode, a major third above the root in fifth. Let's listen to the Miyakobushi and Minyo modes, noting how the two tetrachord structures stays constant between them. Koizumi's four modes exhaust the possibilities for filling in the two tetrachords. Already, the relevance of Koizumi's tetrachordal theory to non-octave repeating scales is clear. 
Koizumi conceived of the perfect fourth rather than the octave as the basic unit of pitch organization for Japanese modes. This flowed naturally from the melodies Koizumi studied, as they predominantly exhibited very narrow range, often much narrower than the octave. Also, many Japanese melodies combine tetrachords from different modes, such as a minyo lower tetrachord and a miyakobuchi upper tetrachord, showing the usefulness of seeing tetrachords as the basic unit of pitch organization. However, Koizumi's modes remained octave repeating, alternating between disjunct tetrachords, between the fourth and the fifth, and conjunct tetrachords, the octave overlapping as the end of the second tetrachord and the start of its first repetition. This is because Koizumi's theories described traditional Japanese music that uses octave repetition. But what if Koizumi had not alternated between disjunct and conjunct tetrachords, eschewing the octave altogether? Heinz Tawa includes a tantalizing footnote to this effect, quote, By contrast, if all tetrachords were conjunct, or if they were all disjunct, a spiral of new pitch classes would be produced as the music went higher or lower, end quote. Heinz Tawa does not pursue this thought further, but the result of this conjecture would be a non-octave repeating scale based either on perfect fourths, if conjunct, or perfect fifths, if disjunct. The verbal resonance of Heinz Tawa's spiral of pitches to Qingfang's 60-tone pentatonic spiral is striking. George Russell was a black American jazz musician and theorist known for his 1953 treatise Lydian Chromatic Concept of Tonal Organization. Though Russell's Lydian Chromatic Concept, or LCC, was foundational to jazz theory and seminal records like Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, Russell was marginalized by the Music Academy in his time and has only recently begun to receive the recognition as a music theorist he deserves. Russell's LCC proposed two key claims. First, a chord is defined not by its structure of notes, but by the mode it implies. This observation is routinely put into practice by jazz musicians who read chord symbols in fake books and solo over them using the appropriate mode scales. Second comes Russell's revolutionary claim. The Lydian scale is the sound of its tonic major chord. In other words, the mode implied by a major triad or major seventh chord is not Ionian, commonly known as the major scale, but rather the Lydian mode. This is because the Ionian mode has an avoid note its fourth, while the raised Lydian fourth still sounds consonant over the major triad or seventh chord. However, perhaps the most fascinating part is how Russell arrived at the Lydian mode for his theory. Russell posited a sequence of perfect fifths resonating upwards from the root note of the scale over three and a half octaves. If based on a root note of C, these stacked fifths eventually yield an F sharp the raised Lydian fourth, or sharp 11 in chord symbol terms, rather than the F natural used in the major, or Ionian, scale. Collapsing these fifths into the span of an octave then yields the Lydian mode, the basis for the LCC. Let's listen to Russell's sequence of fifths, followed by the Lydian scale derived from it. As I have studied the LCC and applied Russell's insights in my own compositions, a recurring question arises. 
why did Russell not continue his sequence of perfect fifths past the Lydian sharp 11? Doing so from a root of C would have yielded after the F sharp, a C sharp, then G sharp, D sharp, A sharp or B flat, and then F natural before returning to the root C, like this. As to why Russell did not do this, the ready at hand answer, that Russell already had a C natural and thus could not also have a C sharp, assumes octave equivalence in the context of an octave repeating scale. Through private correspondence, George Russell scholar David Forrest agreed that Russell's findings assume octave equivalence as they were designed for use in an octave equivalence style. Russell's priority, according to Forrest, was arguing for the Lydian mode as the primary diatonic order. His sequence of fifths was a means to achieving that end, and he saw no need to carry it further. Russell wasn't trying to construct the complete tonal space possible, but draw attention to a striking aspect of a part of that space. Like Jingfang's 60-tone spiral of pentatonic scales, Russell's stacked fifths was a theoretical heuristic for grounding and explaining practical musical outcomes. Significantly for non-octave repeating scales, the underlying foundation of Russell's LCC is the perfect fifth, making no mention of the octave whatsoever. In other words, if Russell had not collapsed the sequence of stacked fifths into the span of an octave for pragmatic reasons, he might have arrived at non-octave repeating scales based on the perfect fifth. The infinite extensibility of a non-octave repeating tonal space aligns well with Russell's philosophy of the LCC. These three music theorists proposed harmonic structures based on intervals other than the octave. Each stopped short of full non-octave repetition for pragmatic reasons, theorizing or performing in a repertoire that assumed octave repetition. But what if Koizumi had gone further, arranging his modal tetrachords as all disjunct or all conjunct? What if Russell had extended his sequence of perfect fifths past the Lydian sharp 11, creating a fifths-based harmonic spectrum instead of collapsing the resulting pitches within the span of an octave? We can only speculate about these counterfactual histories, but exploring non-octave repeating scales will gesture towards what the results might have sounded like. The final section of this episode explores properties of non-octave repeating scales, examples of non-octave repeating scales I have found effective, and audio recordings of non-octave repeating scales used in the works of three living composers. I draw on Craig Weston's paper, Some Properties of Non-Octave Repeating Scales and Why Composers Might Care, given at the 2012 Region 6 Society of Composers Inc. conference. Weston's pitch class analysis of possible non-octave repeating scales goes into further detail than I can here, and I recommend reading the text version of Weston's paper, linked in the episode notes. Following Weston, I will classify the repeating interval of a scale according to the level of transposition in semitones. For example, repetition at the perfect fifth would be T7, repetition at the octave T12, and repetition at the major ninth T14. 
This avoids centralizing the octave, as conventional interval labels do, instead treating octave repetition like any other level of transposition. Not all octave repeating scales have equal compositional potential. T1 and T2 are too small to produce unique results, producing the chromatic scale and the whole tone scale respectively. Intervals that divide evenly into T12, such as T3, T4, and T6, lead to repetition too quickly and produce octave repeating scales. For example, the whole half and half whole octatonic scales are T3 repeating scales that repeat at the octave after four cycles. T8 and T9, minor and major sixths, also repeat after three and four respective cycles, with the notes of repetition forming an augmented triad and fully diminished seventh chord respectively. However, because the interval repetition is wider, spanning two octaves for T8 repeating scales and three octaves for T9 repeating scales, the non-repeating space may be wide enough to be compositionally interesting, especially for instruments with a relatively narrow range. Weston does favor T9 repeating scales, such as this one, which spans three octaves before repeating. There is also a T8 repeating chord voicing I find useful, a minor triad repeating at T8. The lugubrious result sounds like a minor major 7th chord with split thirds and an emphasized dissonance on the Aeolian 6th. However, it does not seem to expand much when moving through registers. Functionally, it sounds like a tall jazz chord voicing repeating every two octaves. The most compositionally interesting non-octave repeating scales are those based off fourths, T5 and T10 by extension, fifths, T7 and T14 by extension, and the major seventh or minor ninth, T11 and T13. T5 repeating scales span five octaves before reaching its root note again, and T7 repeating scales span seven octaves, almost the entire range of the piano. T11 and T13 repeating scales extend beyond the piano, spanning 11 and 13 octaves respectively, more than is pragmatically usable on acoustic instruments. I have found T5 or T10 and T7 or T14 repeating collections most useful in my own compositions. Now, let's listen to some examples. The first set consists of modal scales, along with their typical chord voicings, repeating at the T14 or major 9th. Though each mode is a 7-note collection repeating at the octave, for simplicity's sake I will include the octave repetition of the root as the 8th note of the collection before it starts over at the 9th. First is a T14 repeating Lydian mode, with a major 7th chord voicing. I like this non-octave repeating scale's progression towards the sharp side keys, seeming to expand the higher one traverses across registers. The multiple major sevens built into the chord voicing give it an ethereal, dreamy quality. Next is a T14 repeating Dorian mode, with a minor seventh chord voicing.
In the Dorian mode, any scale note sounds good over its tonic minor 7th chord. Sounding two iterations of this minor 7th chord voicing generates all the notes of a Dorian scale. Also, to my ear at least, the second scale iteration is quite usable over the 7th chord of the first scale iteration, D Dorian above a C minor 7th, for example. Next is a T14 repeating Mixolydian mode with a dominant 7th chord voicing. Used as a standalone vertical chord sonority, this is one of my favorite non-octave repeating scales. Even at the outer range of the spectrum, the included pitches support each other well, making this voicing effective for wide textures and sonorities spanning the full range of the ensemble. Next is a T14 repeating Lydian Mixolydian mode, sometimes called the acoustic scale because it is derived from the overtone series, with a chord voicing that, in isolation, sounds like the whole tone collection. This chord voicing sounds derived from the whole tone collection, including both the sharp 4 and flat 7 of Lydian and Mixolydian, respectively. But melodically, the 5th and 6th scale degrees provide the scale an interesting asymmetry, so that melodies are not simply made of whole steps and their derivative intervals. And as the scale expands across registers, the placement of this asymmetry shifts, creating melodies that evolve in fascinating ways. Now, to make good on the non-octave repeating potential of Koizumi's tetrachordal theory, here are two non-octave repeating adaptations of traditional Japanese modes. First, a T7 repeating Miyakobushi mode, using only disjunct tetrachords, and then a T5 repeating Ritsu mode, using conjunct tetrachords. I've previously used each of these non-octave repeating scales to generate complex melodies that evolve as they expand across registers. Finally, we will hear four excerpts of music from living composers who have researched and composed with non-octave repeating scales. First is Luis Obregón's Bells of Silk and Wood for piano and erhu. As the presence of the erhu suggests, this piece is based on Chinese harmonic frameworks, specifically the three-scale rise-slash-fall tuning sequence and Qingfang's 60-tone spiral of pentatonic scales. Listen for the right-hand piano ostinato outlining the first six notes of the rise-slash-fall tuning sequence and the T7 repeating pentatonic collections that expand to novel harmonic areas in higher and lower registers.
The second is my composition Concerto Ludus for piano and Game Boy. This piece recreates the sound world of retro video game soundtracks with electronic sound sources derived from plugins emulating the sound chip of the original Nintendo Game Boy. This passage uses a T14 repeating Mixolydian mode, with a suspended 7 chord voicing arpeggiated across the piano showcasing most of the expanding tonal space. Third is Craig Weston's Glancing Spirals for violin, clarinet, and piano. This piece uses the T9 repeating whole tone collection showcased earlier. The harmonic material of this lyrical passage may seem to teeter between tonality and non-tonality, because, of course, it is non-octave repeating tonality. This reflects Weston's fundamental boredom with the, quote, false dichotomy between tonal and atonal music, end quote. Listen for the pitch spectrum of this passage becoming gradually revealed, metamorphizing as the instruments stretch into higher or lower registers. Fourth is a passage from my Holocaust Remembrance opera, Eva and the Angel of Death, telling the story of Auschwitz survivor Eva Moses Kor. In this passage, mezzo-soprano Eva Moses Kor, age 10 in the narrative, resolves to survive and walk out of Auschwitz alive with her sister Miriam. At the moment of her climactic declaration, swelling T7 repeating stacked fifths voiced throughout the orchestra punctuate Eva's courageous statements suggesting with their expansive tonal space the freedom that Eva envisions. This episode has posed the question, what if octaves aren't equivalent, as a provocative challenge to the assumed octave repetition underlying much melodic and harmonic analysis. The voices of three music theorists speaking from outside the traditional European-American classical music canon, Ching Fong, Ko Izumi Fumio, and George Russell, have offered theoretical alternatives to octave-based pitch organization, though each for their own reasons did not embrace total non-octave repetition. 
Then we heard several non-octave repeating scales and four excerpts from the music of living composers, highlighting the compositional potential of non-octave repeating scales. Let's conclude with five, out of many reasons, to use non-octave repeating scales. One, melodic. Using expanded resources for melodic writing based on register, beyond a consonance or dissonance binary based on the current chord. Two, harmonic. Non-octave repeating scales offer virtually unlimited and largely untapped resources for devising new chordal timbres. Three, formal. It enables music to modulate across an unfolding spectrum based on a continuum of nearness and distantness of register. Four, semiotic. Because non-octave repeating scales do not currently have much presence in the musical landscape, using them offers fresh potential for signification. They're strategic rather than stylistic or conventional in Robert Hatton's terms. And five, historical. Weston writes that there are at least two versions of music history, the official version and the chutzpah version, where all prior musics lead logically to one's own music. In one sense, I have offered a small-scale chutzpah version of music history, where non-octave repeating scales offer some of the familiar structure of common practice tonality, while freeing composers from the tyranny of the octave and a single tonal center. I believe there is value in non-octave repeating scales falling somewhere between the passé false dichotomy between tonal and atonal music. This episode is an invitation to research, to dialogue about, and to create using non-octave repeating scales. Perhaps one day, listeners can, like myself, come not only to hear this sound, but also this one. As equivalent. Just not octave equivalent. I would like to thank my collaborative peer reviewer, Craig Weston, as well as Luis Obregón, David Forrest, Liam Heinz Tawa, and Ginny Beavers for their literature recommendations and draft feedback. Thanks also goes to SMT Pod's co-chairs, Ginny Beavers, Megan Lyons, my episode producer, Jen Weaver, and all the SMT Pod board members. The compositions heard between segments of this episode include Earthrise for saxophone quartet and Concerto Ludus for piano and Game Boy, both composed by me. The compositions featured in the third segment include Bells of Silk and Wood for Erhu and Piano, Movement 2, Ligero, by Luis Obregón, Glancing Spirals for Violin, Clarinet, and Piano, Movement 3, Sweetly Singing, by Craig Weston, and Concerto Ludis and Eva and the Angel of Death, a Holocaust Remembrance Opera, composed by me. Check out the episode notes for scores, recordings, and articles referenced, the episode transcript, and additional materials for further research. Visit our website, smt-pod.org, for supplemental materials related to this episode and to learn how to submit an episode proposal. And join in the conversation by tweeting us your questions and comments at smt underscore pod. SMT Pod's theme music was written by Zheng Chen Liu, with closing music by David Voss. Thanks for listening!